Open your Bibles to Psalm 73, as Gino said. Navigate over there on your device. I'll be in the New King James Version if you want to actually follow along and see how it makes sense. It's a study we're calling Asaph's Foibles. We're going to meet Asaph, the author of Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83. He was a young priest from the tribe of Levi when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem about 995 B.C. His father, Berechiah, was appointed doorkeeper of the Ark. Asaph was so gifted musically that David put him in charge of the praise before the Ark of the Covenant. He was assisted there by his brother, Zechariah. The main tabernacle and most of the senior priests and Levites were at Gibeon. Asaph was in charge of the music in Jerusalem where the ark and the king were. We know that Asaph kept that position at least until the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem almost 40 years later. At that time, the worship services of the tent of meeting and the tabernacle were consolidated in the temple and the ark of the covenant was reinstalled in its rightful place in the Holy of Holies next to the holy place. Asaph served in Jerusalem for all of David's reign and no doubt set to music many of the psalms that God gave David. He was in Jerusalem when God gave David the great promise that David would have a son who would be the Messiah and reign forever. He saw the death of David and the accession of Solomon and the building of the temple. What an amazing time for someone dedicated to the worship of the Lord. He was on the mountaintop as far as spiritual experiences go. I mean, David, the psalmist, who was also the warrior king, the golden age of Israel under his rule and reign, uh, and, and Asaph there in Jerusalem in charge of the worship. It was a, a dream come true. After Solomon's dedication of the temple, things changed rather dramatically. Solomon turned his back on God and pursued power, wealth, luxury, human wisdom, as well as the worship of other gods, marrying many foreign wives. To finance these pursuits, the people were oppressed with slavery and taxes. There's good reason to believe that during Solomon's reign, Asaph's brother, Zechariah, was assassinated in the temple by some of Solomon's agents. After Solomon's death, Asaph, obviously now a very old man, saw David's kingdom torn in two. The northern part, restless under Solomon's punishing taxes and resentful at his wasteful luxury, rebelled and took Jeroboam as king. The southern part, mostly the tribe of Judah, went with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Now in the winter of his years, Asaph surveyed the wreckage of his hopes and dreams. It's also been suggested, and we'll see as we go through the text, that Asaph was himself physically afflicted, perhaps having had a heart attack or some other type of disease based on some of the language that he uses to describe himself. Now, I went into a little bit of biographical detail about Asaph because I think we sometimes approach Psalm 73 as if Asaph was having a bad day or a bad week or a bad year. You know, you come, so you come home at night and you just, just had a bad day. You know, somebody said something to you or, it, you know, you, you blew it or, you know, something, and then you want to get right back on track. But Asaph was not just having a bad day. He was nearing the end of his life and things were not good, and they weren't going to get good anytime soon. He'd been on the mountaintop, and that only made his valley that much deeper. 
He had walked with God, served God, worshiped God all the years of his life, and now towards the end, instead of enjoying the fruit of his labor, he was really starting to wonder if any of it was worthwhile. It's in this more complete context that we now approach Psalm 73. And so in verse one, he says it's a Psalm of Asaph. He says, truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. Pure of heart designates believers as opposed to those just going through the outward rituals. To those who are spiritual Israelites, to those who are saved, God is good. Now, I'm glad he starts this psalm like this because he gets negative pretty quickly here. This is what Asaph believed his entire life. It was based on the word of God, based on the nature of God. It's what he would still believe even more so by the end of this psalm. And I believe it's what we believe that God is truly good to such as are pure in heart, to us who believe. Uh, God is good all the time. Asaph's problem was that the world didn't seem to correspond to that worldview. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the prosperity of the wicked had been a constant for many decades. It finally began to dominate his worldview. Asaph was on the verge of stumbling, he said, of of slipping in his walk. Some of you, you know, you've seen wickedness prosper at your place of business, in our country, um, in different guises, in different places, at our sound table. And you keep thinking every day that somebody is going to do something about it. God's going to do something about it, like fix the sound like he just did. And maybe nothing happens. It's interesting. I I found it interesting that often non-believers have a problem with God because he allows them to suffer. We have a problem with God because he allows them to prosper. It's interesting, a perspective, isn't it? The non-believer you talk to says, well, why would God allow suffering? I, you know, I, I don't know how many people I've talked to in my lifetime who are mad at God because their wife or their husband or their child died, and it's God's fault, then God shouldn't allow suffering. And then we look at wicked people and we think, God, why do you prosper them? Why don't they suffer more like we do? If you're God, you can't win for losing, can you? You really can't. And I think we'd all agree that Asaph exaggerated about non-believers in the next few verses, but the gist of it is that many wicked people do prosper, and I think we feel this way quite often. Uh, Verses four through 12, we'll take them as a unit. It says, there are no pains in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and the waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Because these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, while these things were not always true in every case, Asaph had seen enough wicked people over the years who did fit these descriptions. Not every non-believer, for example, had no pains in their death 
But he'd seen enough wicked men go peacefully and be eulogized and fondly remembered that it was starting to stumble him. You ever gone to a funeral and wanted to say, hey, that's just not true? But you held your tongue, I hope. (laughs) I've been to some, well, of course, you and I go to more funerals than you, but uh, uh, I've been to some crazy funerals for people who just 10 minutes ago, you hated the guy. He was the worst human being on the planet. Oh, he was so wonderful. Just a joy to be around. Died doing what he loved. You know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I shouldn't make fun of funerals, but that's, that's one thing. It's one of the things that always gets me almost at every funeral I've ever been to. Uh, that's an exaggeration. But at a lot of funerals, somebody at some point says, he or she died doing what they loved, and they just didn't, really. I mean, some of the ways people die, uh, they didn't love the way they died. So anyway, but people, you know, you don't know what to say, and so... I think the weirdest thing ever, we're doing a, we had a big funeral here a few years ago, and um, it's always <sighs> dicey when you open the mic, you know? But the family always wants people to come up and give eulogies, and, and you, just, uh, you just never know what's gonna happen. Somebody always tells a story that you wish they hadn't told, but this one gal comes up and she goes, she goes, well, I was re- really nervous about saying anything, but my friend just said to imagine everyone sitting there naked. And I thought, wow, that's the last thing I want to imagine. <laughs> Ruined the moment. But anyway, so Asaph, he looked, this was his survey. And I think, you know, uh, some of you, as you've gotten older and you've just gotten, you know, you look at the world and you think, hey, you know, wicked people, they just seem to go on and prosper. They retire, they do what they want, they don't get diseases. And, you know, you ignore the ones that don't fit that profile, but there's enough of, of people in the profile to think that God's not noticing. He says in verse 13, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Essentially, Asaph's is saying, hey, I could have been having a great time too. This is the attitude we get sometimes that Christianity means you give up everything. Oh, I, you know, I can't do what the wicked are doing. Huh? Brainstorm, wicked. <laughs> Why do you want to do that? It, it seems like so much more fun, but it's not. And so Asaph's just upset. He questioned the value of living a wholly separated life in light of the prosperity of the wicked. Why bother? What good was it if the righteous suffered and the wicked prospered? He says in verse 14, all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Now, this is one of the verses that gives rise to the thinking Asaph was troubled by some ongoing serious physical infirmity. Uh, It it seems like it's more than just an emotional uh, reaction. He says, man, every day I'm plagued and every morning it's tough. And those of you, you, you getting older, some of you, mornings are rough. It's, you know, there's a lot of stumbling that goes on that didn't used to go on before. Tripping and falling and I, I you know, I mismeasured my coffee the other day and it was like the almost, the, I didn't know what to do. I just, I started pouring without the scale being teared and I thought, oh no, this is going to ruin my life. But anyway, mornings are rough. I used to think I was a morning person. I still think I'm a morning person. 
but I'm really not. I'm kind of like an afternoon person now, you know, by, it's, it's just, it's different. And so he had some particular problems. Uh, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Now, this is a very interesting verse. It's probably worth a study all by itself. I think you'll get the gist of it. You may or may not agree with me, uh, but it's worth meditating on. I believe that although deeply troubled, Asaph kept his thoughts to himself, obviously until he wrote this psalm and had worked things out. How would it be for the worship leader of Israel to speak publicly about this opinion? And so you think, well, wait a minute, I thought we want to be vulnerable and we want to be transparent and we want to be real. I hate that statement. Let's be real. It, it intimates that you're fake all the time. I mean, if you're going to be real, then what are you five minutes earlier? You're some kind of phony guy. Hey, <laughs> now I'm going to be real, which usually is just unloading yourself on other people uh, and letting them bear your burdens for you and stuff. But anyway, let's stay in the text. I don't want to get off too much, but... Um, was he being untrue? Did he lack these, this vulnerability or transparency? I say hardly because remember verse one, Asaph believed God was good all the time. He never quit believing that. He was just having a hard time working it out. He says, look, I'm gonna write this psalm about how I see the wicked prospering and all the turmoil it put me through, but I'm gonna let you know from the get-go, God is good all the time. Regardless that I had a pity party or I was whining or whatever was going on with me. God remained good. And so uh, in verse two where he said he almost stumbled, in other words, these were deep inner struggles between himself and God that need not spill over into the lives of others and risk stumbling them. Now I know this goes against the grain. Everybody is, you know, everybody wants to wear their heart on their sleeve now. You know, the, your blog is going to be really popular if you start talking about your fears and all the, you know, the way, how you doubt God and all this stuff, and everybody's going to kind of relate to it and stuff. But um, I just think it would be wrong for Asaph to do that. You don't want your worship leader to get up who's having a bad day or a bad month or a bad year or a bad decade to say, eh, you know, God, look at that guy prospering. Let's praise the Lord. You know, it just, <laughs> because he knows. What I love about Asaph, he knows he's going to work this out. He knows God is good. God can't be anything other than good because he is God. He's worshiped him. He's praised him. And so he wants to work this out, and he does through the psalm. And, but by the time we get to the psalm, you know, he's come to his conclusion. So if you want to share your trials and your failures, do it after you've worked it out. I'm not saying you can't counsel with somebody or that you can't you know, have a confidant. It better be your husband or your wife, but uh, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Being real is sometimes not being honest. You think, well, you're just being honest. No, you're not being honest because you don't really believe that about God. You believe God is good. You're just having trouble working it out. All of us are. And so let's hold on to the fact that God is good. It would have been untrue, he says, to the current generation to stumble them with doubts that he was working out. 
A servant thinks of others at all times and has God's grace to sustain him or her even in times of spiritual turmoil. You know, maybe I'm more of a loner than other people, I don't know, but I, I think ultimately it's just you and God. You understand? Everyone is going to fail you at some point because we're all imperfect. And so you're gonna have to, you're going to have to make things work between you and God, going to God, privately with God, having him encourage you. Where do you go? Well, you go to God. It's great that we have a community of believers and we can share different things with each other and, and all, but ultimately, we want to share our deepest heart with the Lord and let him minister to us. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. That means Asaph had been working on this problem for a very long time. Over the years, I'm sure he'd come up with any number of seeming theological solutions. I'm sure things seemed much different when he was younger than they did now. But lately, all his reasonings led him to just feel pain. And then he finally says in verse 17, this is where the psalm turns, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Asaph had been going into the sanctuary of God on more than a regular basis for his entire long life. He worked in the sanctuary of God. And he says, all of a sudden, I went into God's sanctuary. He probably logged more sanctuary hours than just about anybody when you think about it. But it seems that one day he went into the sanctuary and had a revelation about the end of the wicked. It just shows us that you never know when God is going to reveal himself to you or where he's going to do it. It's important that we just go where God tells us to go, be where God tells us to be, plug in, you know, and be there. And the fact that you could maybe come to church week after week for years, and then all of a sudden, one Sunday, bam, God works something out that he's been working out. I don't think, I don't want to elevate ourselves, obviously, but... I don't think we understand how complicated the human heart is and how gentle and how gently God deals with us. You know, we pray that God would change the hearts of our neighbors or our family of our friends and he's always at work doing that. God is always at work. We're seeing with Habakkuk on Sunday mornings, God, Habakkuk is saying, God, why don't you do something? And we say, God's been doing something for decades. He's been doing lots of different things for decades but because we don't see a result, we act like he's not doing anything. The human heart is a complex thing. God is very cautious with the human heart. He's very kind. He's very gentle. He doesn't want to destroy people. He wants them to discover him. Honestly, from a position of free will, those kinds of things. And so there's nothing wrong with praying that God would, would you know, reveal himself or do things in people's lives just know that he really is. He is doing those things. He's doing everything he can because God loves them more than you do. There's no one on earth that you love more than God loves and that he isn't working to save or heal or bless. And so one day he goes into the sanctuary and he has this revelation, something he knew, but it finally dawned on his heart. I love young believers, people who first come to faith in Jesus Christ. They'll come up and they say, man, I just realized something really cool. Jesus loves me. And you've been a Christian, you're, you're, you're an old crusty saying, yeah, 
I realize that and ought to, you know. <laughs> you act like it's no big deal or, you know, like it's, like, oh, everybody knows that, you know. And then, some, then, you know, two weeks later, you realize that you've left your first love somewhere uh, and, and have to return to it. And so we go into the sanctuary of God uh, and, and we can be really ministered to. Jeremiah 17, 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. In Revelation, we're told after the consummation of all things that the new Jerusalem will have no temple. Uh, John says, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The wicked may seem to prosper, but their stories do not have any happy endings. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. The wicked may seem to be walking carefree, but they're on a dangerous ground and risk suddenly losing their footing and falling into perdition. While they may be eulogized on the earth and applauded for their lives, we know the scene in the afterlife is to their dismay. When God awakes to judgment, they shall be terrified. In one sense, I guess we should, you know, I mean, we're just human, and so this is how we feel, but you should always look at the wicked, no matter how wicked they are, and think, I just feel, don't you just feel sorry for that person? Because if they don't come to know Jesus Christ, you know their end. It doesn't matter how many beers they can chug now or how many girlfriends they have or how much gold they accumulate, how many cars they drive or how successful they are, if they don't come to know the Lord, uh, it's appointed unto men once to die and then after this judgment. And, And that's a sad, terrible thing. You know, we have to have a greater compassion for uh, people who are perishing, no matter what they're doing to us. He says, thus my heart was grieved And I was vexed in my mind, I think, because of the condition of the wicked. He was gaining, or we would say regaining, God's heart for the wicked. He was coming to understand God's long-suffering. I've been stuck on this for a while. You know that if you've been here uh, the last few months and maybe even the last year, this idea of God's long-suffering. It really solves a lot of problems in my mind in terms of what's going on in the world. Peter says, God's long-suffering is salvation. And so God says, I'm not coming today because other people are getting saved. And I'm not coming tomorrow, perhaps. I may not come. I mean, I've been a Christian since 1979, and I honestly believe every day that Jesus could come back at any minute. I really do. And because he hasn't come back, it hasn't changed my heart at all, Um. I remember one time at the YMCA, a gal, sweet gal who uh, is still here in town. I love him, and but she came up and she goes, "I'm always going to remember you as the pastor who told me Jesus was coming." And I thought, "All right, <laughs> put that on my tombstone," you know. But uh, I, I do. I believe that the Lord could come at any minute. But the but his uh, you know delay is long suffering. His long suffering is salvation. It allows a lot of terrible things to happen, as we see, but it also brings a lot of people into the kingdom of God. And I think that's, that's where this hinges for Asaph. He says, not just, you know, I, I see the wicked and their end, but that's a terrible thing to see. 
And when God does something, he does it so completely. I mean, look at the history that we learn in the Bible, like, you know, Habakkuk again, because that's where our mind is on Sunday mornings. When Babylon fell, I mean, it fell hard. The Medes and the Persians came in during their drunken feast and they slaughtered everybody. You know, it, it, you know, and then the same thing happened to that empire and the other empires and, and all. And so, you know, when God acts, God's always acting, he's always moving, but when he brings something forth, it's powerful. And so uh, Asaph is coming to his senses. He says, verse 22, I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Animals are dominated by the material world. They're all about their environment and their needs and drives and wants. We had Siberian Huskies for years. I don't know why. It was just insanity. Uh, just, I wouldn't recommend it to my worst enemy. They're the most just, you know, they're filled with energy, and if you don't play with them, only when they want to be played with, I mean, when they don't, they just leave them alone, then they start destroying things in your house, in your yard, uh, yeah, I had to invent ways of, uh, of, of giving them water because they would knock over their water and look at me. You know, I, so I had to chain up their water so that they couldn't get... One night I came home, we had one of those, those uh, chain link fence, you know, uh, pens for the dogs. And I don't know how long the one dog had bitten through some of it and was just caught, you know, under the fence. And I thought, what? what I guess I had to ruin the whole thing in order to get the dog free. Uh, they only th- and, and the one thing I always remember about them, they used to, they love to eat uh, morning doves. Now, I don't know how a morning dove could get caught by a dog, but the, you know, they would run out in the backyard and grab a morning dove, and before I could get to them, they would swallow it whole. <laughs> and then just look at me. Why that was exciting to dogs. You want to have some fun, follow the Vogel sayings on uh, Facebook. <laughs> You'll find out some things about dogs that you didn't know. Their dogs are very helpful around the house. <laughs> Let me just say that. And uh, Animals, they're just driven by that kind of material. And so that Asaph says, hey, when, when you think like this, When you look at the wicked and you're thinking like that, you're just being driven in a physical, material way, and we're really spiritual beings, and so let's live on that plane. When I look at the prosperity of the wicked, I'm falling, or excuse me, I'm failing to take into account any higher purpose for my life than my physical ease. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. Asaph had been conducting himself as if God were a distant force he was trying to analyze. All the while, the Lord was his constant companion holding his hand. I was going to title this study, He Want to Hold My Hand, because, but he does. So think of that next time the, the Beatles come on. God wants to hold your hand. He does hold your hand, whether you know it or not. Verse 24, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. You are guided by God along a path fraught with seeming inconsistencies and contradictions like the prosperity of the wicked, but he gets you to the safety of glory afterward. He who has begun a good work in you will do what? He will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. He cannot fail to bring you to that place and he will guide you along the way. You only need a guide if you don't know where you're going, right? And, and this is the idea is that I don't know, Lord, I don't know where I'm going. This seems like the wrong turn. 
this seems like the, I feel like I'm in the wrong world sometimes because we're otherworldly now. We're citizens of heaven. And God says, it's all right, I'm guiding you. We're going to go through some adversity here. We're going to go through some suffering here. We're going to go through some really deep sorrow here. We're going to have some highs along the way as well, but I will get you to the end. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. It's a rather huge declaration. Asaph did have others in heaven, loved ones who had preceded him, and so do we. Plus, we have rewards being stored there. Add to that the absolute extravagance of heaven itself. Contemplating all that, Asaph confidently declared that God was the one great treasure he sought. Heaven itself and all that is in it is dwarfed by knowing God. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is where some commentators suggest he had a heart attack or a stroke or congestive heart failure. Maybe, but now he had been rallied spiritually to care more about where he was headed than where he was or had been. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Looking forward to eternity, all those who desert God for some harlotry will perish. You know, I, I think we should call, sometimes we need to call sinful things by harsh names. We have a tendency to, you know, to, to dumb down what's really going on. We, you know, we call, and, and I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get flamed by anybody, but, you know, we talk about alcoholism. We need to say that people are drunkards that are, you know, that are abusing alcohol. You're a drunk. Well, that's pretty harsh. Well, yeah, yeah. And you're committing adultery. You're not having an affair. You're committing adultery. You're, you know, acting like a harlot, a prostitute, those kinds of things. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, we always want to speak the truth in love, but I, sometimes we have to speak the truth. And, 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 you know, we don't need to soften what a person is doing. They need to understand that it's sin. Looking backward from our secure place in eternity, we draw near to God now, trusting in him to perform all he has promised despite what happens along the way. Verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. He held his tongue so as not to stumble others. Now he's declaring all God's works. What do you see? Do you see the righteous suffering, the wicked prospering, evil seeming to get the upper hand? What you see depends on where you're looking. Look no further than your hand because the Lord is holding it and then lift your gaze beyond the earth to heaven where glory awaits. Amen. Amen. 